Hey, this is a Hakawari production. Hi there! Welcome to the men's room. I'm really psyched about today's show because it's all about hope and looking to the future, which is something that's been hard to do for the last several weeks. Yesterday, I saw a family swimming off the rocks on the Corniche in Beirut for the first time in a long time. If you know Beirut, you know what I'm talking about. It's not a beach by any means, but it's a very popular unofficial spot for rogue swimming, I guess you could call it, and for extremely non-finicky people. It's a hot spot for, well, honestly speaking, mostly men, to sunbathe and smoke shisha and play paddleball. Anyways, seeing life coming back to this very special Beirut summer ecosystem is a reminder that there's light at the end of the tunnel and that eventually we'll be back to some sense of normalcy and we can continue to build our lives and businesses after this unsettling pause in a new and hopefully wiser way. Speaking of ecosystem, my guest today is the author of Ecosystem Arabia, a book that's basically an aggregation of insights from over 100 of the world's experts on startups and tech ecosystems and prominent figures from the Middle East. It's a unique resource for investors and entrepreneurs in the region, but also a great tool for policymakers who would like to develop and nurture their own knowledge-based economies. He's also the former director of Marketplace at Souk.com and the founder of Intumina Group, which helps connect international businesses with opportunities in the Middle East. Joining us from Spain, where he's writing out the COVID-19 measures, please welcome Amir Hagazi. Hi, Amir. Hello. Hi, Nadia. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you here to talk about the very dynamic startup ecosystem in the Middle East and what we can look forward to once we emerge from this pandemic. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Ecosystem Arabia is your second book. Um, you're also the author of Startup Arabia, which you published in 2018. So what's your story? How did you end up writing books about the growth ecosystem and startups in the Middle East? Uh, probably I would say it, uh, the genesis of the first book had to do a lot with my own kind of history starting at Souk.com. So I was a director of marketplace at Souk. Uh, ultimately, Souk, as you know, was sold to uh, acquired to Amazon. And upon that outcome, I felt uh inspired to share that story to the world. I felt that, uh, you know, I was obviously proud of what we did and and uh, felt it was inspiring. Even at Souk, uh, we had this mantra internally of making history, of setting a new bar and show, in fact, that uh, locally grown startups can become world class. So upon that acquisition, um, I was eager to share that story with the world and, and quickly realized also that it's not just a one success story in the region. There are plenty of other uh, success stories, and I wanted to kind of bring them to the surface and help uh, educate and inspire the new generation of entrepreneurs. Uh, I felt that local stories resonate best uh, with local entrepreneurs. They may not necessarily always relate to a Mark Zuckerberg or a, or a, or a Bill Gates, and they wanted to kind of see someone from the region who's in, their, in the similar shoes who went on to achieve remarkable success. Uh, so that was my first book. Um, so in a nutshell, what is Ecosystem Arabia all about? Uh, so Ecosystem Arabia is about ecosystem development uh, as, a, as a broad topic for environments anywhere in the world uh, that are looking to bring on more innovation and, and, and help support high growth entrepreneurship activities. Uh, more specifically, as it relates to the Middle East, in terms of 
what's the current state of the ecosystem and the business environment. Uh, and obviously with that touches on a lot of different aspects from policy to education to culture to fundraising and so forth. And then what can we do to help bring it to the next level and bringing those perspective of the, the key stakeholders and the experts in the different fields. It's actually, a, sorry to interrupt, it's actually a very interesting book. I, I read it myself, even though I'm not, you know, um, an expert in the field, but there's a lot of very interesting information um, for, for anyone who kind of has a curiosity about what's happening, who are the players. Um, but before we get into more details, can you kind of just explain what an ecosystem is? Obviously, we're not talking about a jungle here uh, for people who might not really understand what it what it means. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, obviously, the concept originally is, is from ecology, uh, you know, relating to an environment where you have sun and water and soil and plants and so forth, and that uh, gives rise to life. And similarly, in a business context, uh, an ecosystem has been used to mean uh, an environment that's conducive to entrepreneurial activities, uh, to innovation, uh, to highly scalable ventures and, and growth in general. Uh, so it, it's all-encompassing of, of the different components that give rise to successful companies in general, uh, more specifically high-growth startups. So those includes, you know, funding and, and policy and education and culture and, and entrepreneurs and, and the market itself, uh, the consumer market. It's kind of like uh, a spider web. These are web. all elements. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's almost like these are the, the pieces in the puzzle you need to have to make it easier for these companies to set up and scale quickly. And that's why you see certain, uh, you know, obviously the most obvious example is Silicon Valley. Why is it successful? Well, there were, it was a fertile environment for these companies to rise. And meanwhile, there are other environments where you don't see much growth coming from because of challenges that these entrepreneurs would face. Hmm. So the question is, how can you create an environment that lends itself for those entrepreneurs to succeed uh, and go on and become you know, world-class companies and, and so forth. Yeah. So let's get a little bit even more into the terminology here, because in your book, there's some debate about whether we should call it a startup ecosystem or a growth ecosystem or a technology ecosystem. But one of your contributors, Daniel Eisenberg, who's a professor of entrepreneurship practice at Babson College uh, Business School in Massachusetts, talks about the term technology ecosystem or tech ecosystem being misused nowadays because essentially all businesses are leveraging technology, even the traditional ones. So is there even such a thing as a non-tech startup today? Aren't all startups in an ecosystem by definition tech companies? Yeah, I think if we, um, obviously the term, as to your point, has been interchanged. Some call it tech uh, ecosystem, startup ecosystem, innovation. Sometimes it's even uh, referred to as clusters or innovation clusters or innovation hubs. Uh, these are used interchangeably. But if you really think about the concept itself, it's about high growth. It's, it's not about uh, creating an environment where you have, uh, you know, incremental uh, businesses that are growing at an at a, at a incremental pace. It's about how can you create something that really scales up. Uh, and he ultimately uh, prefers the term scale up uh, ecosystem. It's a little bit of a perhaps not as simple as startup or tech but it refers to high growth, mm. right? It's ultimately about how can you create something that's very ripe for companies to disrupt and, and grow at a, a, such a fast pace. So I would hardly imagine uh, a 
you know, a, a company that can scale up without technology nowadays, right? So it yeah. would be a huge uh, disadvantage. So anyone who calls it like a tech ecosystem is kind of old school. They need to be using the correct terms. But um, at which stage, yeah. <laughs> I know that now, Thank you. thanks to your book. So at which stage of development would you say is the Middle East ecosystem currently? So I think overall we can say it's still in a nascent stage. Um, I like, I, I think of it as... Uh, probably in its third wave, if we just kind of break historically where it's been and where it's at today. Uh, so the reason I say it's in it's in it's third wave because, you know, circa you know 2000 and I think the initial inception of the of the ecosystem in the region started probably with Dubai Internet City around 1999, 2000, and then has basically that the first phase was up to 2009 with the exit of Maktoub. Uh, to Yahoo, uh, this phase was, you know, exper experimental in nature. There was a lot of companies trying different things. There wasn't that much of an ecosystem to begin with. Talent was lacking. Um, and then in post that, up to 2017 with the Souk acquisition, that's phase two or the second wave, where there was a lot more adaptation of, of uh, proven models from elsewhere. So we saw companies that would basically copy and adapt into the region other solutions and products and, or other you know services coming from other uh, from US particularly and also from Europe into the region adapting it to a local uh, market so that's up to 2017 and now we're exiting we're actually getting into phase three which is where we're seeing more deep tech startups using, advanced technologies such as AI and big data and blockchain and, and obviously a lot more mature and developed ecosystem with more investors and funds and initiatives from government. Uh, so it's definitely coming becoming a lot mature, uh, especially I would say in the last three years uh, post-Souk. But uh, it's still overall, I would say, still nascent and still developing at a, at a fast pace. So obviously you wrote your book before this whole COVID-19 pandemic. How do you expect it will affect the, the progression that you talk about in the book and what you just mentioned? And what should we expect once the crisis is over, in your opinion? Of course, we're all, you know, kind of guessing here. No one has a crystal ball. Yeah, I think that's a obviously timely question. And I, I think what COVID-19 shows or crisis in general show is how important technology is. Uh, you can totally imagine how difficult it'd be to survive this in any way and, and remotely function without technology, just like this conference we're using right now. Uh, so I think what the crisis does is that it shows how important it is that we have technology, we have innovation. It highlights even more so the role of an ecosystem and getting it right, building that environment that support those innovations in the future. And I think it highlights also the weakness of an ecosystem. Uh, so I know, for example, you know, certain economies where there's uh, consumers uh, or tech-savvy consumer and, and greater adoption of technology is, are going to be, by definition, more resilient than ones that are not. So I think as a result of the crisis, we will see more acceleration into technology. Uh, there'll be a lot more uh, emphasis on efficient and sustainable and cost-effective uh, business models. Uh, so we'll see more, obviously, online education, telemedicine, e-commerce, of course. I, I think that it will just accelerate the consumer adoption to, of that. And then even businesses that will have to adapt and, and pivot to that kind of business. 
So overall, I think, you know, whoever is standing afterwards is definitely going to be a lot more sustainable. It depends a lot also on how individuals and governments and businesses respond to the crisis, right? So I think it's it, it's very important that we keep that engine of growth going and people still kind of keep a forward-thinking uh, mindset and, and, and keep planning and working toward the future and not take a step, a step back and kind of surrender yeah. to sort of a, a chilled-out mode, if you will. Definitely, definitely. That makes sense. We're seeing a lot of those things already, actually, just by by obligation. The online education, the schools are being forced to you know use technology. Um, they were never really forced to before, so it's really a great way to test it and, and improve it and to create habits for people to use it. But... Um, Tell me about which countries in the region were seeing the most activity in terms of investment. And are foreign investors, I mean, you deal with people from all over the world, I'm sure, and you talk to people from all over the world. Are foreign investors nervous about investing in the region still? And why? Definitely in terms of the investment, uh, UAE has been the lead country on that. So it, uh, even though it's only 2% of the Arab population, uh, it has about as of as of most recent uh, report from Magnet, uh, about 30% of total funds uh, and capital raising. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a lead player. Uh, Egypt is second uh, at 20%. Those two, uh, UAE and Egypt, are, are, are getting basically 50% of all the fund, uh, funding activities in the region. To answer your second questions about foreign investors, well, historically, the, the, middle, the region has been a black box. Um, or seen from a distance as unhospitable, uh, unbusiness friendly for different reasons, mainstream media uh, being one. However, I think more recently there is a lot more interest in the region. And that's something I, I tried to highlight in the book, given they see the success stories, right? So the success stories coming into the world arena. Uh, helps shed light that there are opportunities in fact. So things like, you know, the acquisition of Souk and Karim and so forth is kind of encouraging and helping peak interest from uh, global-minded uh, entrepreneurs who are looking for opportunities, uh, investors who are looking to tap into new markets. I think a little bit of that black box has to do with just lack of data and transparency around certain industries. Uh, when they look from outside, they see that there are sometimes protection laws or policies and other mandates of setting up locally that they wouldn't have to face if they were abroad. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a little bit of a disadvantage sometimes to have local operation uh, as, as seen from outside, like, you know, obviously foreign ownership requirements and things like that. Uh, so I think it's getting better. But I think we still have to do a better job in promoting uh, the opportunities in the region. And, and there's obviously a lot of trends and progress being made more recently that should intrigue other global investors and entrepreneurs to come and do business in the region. Yeah. So one of the things you just mentioned uh, relates to... Uh in your book, Russia has made an example of a country that's not been very successful at developing a really good ecosystem, partly because it's relatively closed. Um, Alec Ross, the former, former senior advisor for innovation to the U.S. Secretary of State and also the author of a book called The Industries of the Future, talks about openness as being key to a successful um, ecosystem. And by openness, we mean social mobility, the idea that you can rise above your circumstances that you're born with and are not limited by your social status 
status, which is, um, or what might call tribalism in the region, you know, uh, the rights of minorities, and then also, and this is a big one in the region, religious and social norms, um, which are cultural and are not necessarily set by law, but definitely a very important uh, factor. So is it a major consideration when we're talking about the Middle East growing its ecosystem? Is a lack of openness potentially limiting for, for the region? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at just uh, places around the world, as, as he points out, uh, where there's more openness, there's more innovation. Uh, it just goes hand in hand with economic development and, and innovation, especially for entrepreneurial type of uh, activities. Uh, so openness in terms of movement of ideas and people and goods are key. Uh, so the region has done some uh, some good strides in that in, toward that direction. I think more of that would be helpful. Obviously, certain countries are at different levels. I think Dubai has definitely been a, a great kind of example to the rest of the region of, of what happened when you open to the world and, and you have a lot more international engagement and create a, a welcoming environment for international companies to sit in and, and, and movement of people and, and be more open culturally. Um, I think that has reflected as well, and, and to your point, earlier about uh, the fundraising. Obviously, there's a lot more activities going in, in, in Dubai than the rest of the region uh, per capita. Uh, so I think there's a big case of more openness being helpful economically. Obviously, you have to still balance that with rights and, and so forth. So it's not it's not mutually exclusive. I think it's it's something that the region has some work to do on. Well, you talk about Arabia in your book, and but you're basically talking about MENA, uh, or 22 countries that make up the Arab world with a population of over 400 million people, or 25% more than the US, and the population is relatively young and tech-savvy. So it seems that there's a, a lot of potential here, but can startups really hope to capture like that whole market? Do you think there's enough cohesiveness between these 22 countries? I think, you know, this is one of the key findings in the book, uh, having spoken to so many experts experts and practitioners, is that one of the things that actually limits the potential of, of startups in the region to grow is, is the fragmentation of the market, right? So even with the companies that have been uh, very successful, like Souk and Karim, they really haven't captured the entire region. Uh, Souk has only operated in four or five countries, um, you know, and, and still managed the success. Uh, so what happened if you can allow these companies to to grow throughout the, the full 22 countries, right? So one of the challenges is that even though that there is a common language and common culture and common media and so forth, so all the elements are there for these companies to tackle the entire region, there are friction in terms of setup, licensing. You know, imagine if, for example, in the US, if Google or Facebook or Uber or whatever, had to set up state by state and have offices and licensing and incorporation all over, it would really slow things down. And, and it involves a lot of setup costs and that, you know, as a startup, you're, you're limited on the resources. So it, it would really slow things down. So I think to the extent that there's more collaboration between the countries, specifically as it relates to the startup sector, um, I think that these companies can even go on and, 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 you know, tackle a much bigger landscape, much bigger consumer market of 400 million people uh, and grow on, go on to become even bigger and more successful and, and peak and, and probably uh, be a much more interesting uh, acquisition target uh, for global players. Uh, so that's one, I would say, key challenge that we have to address. 
Yeah, so obviously the market is really huge, but how, but how about the uh, the level of competition in any given sector, considering that the ecosystem is kind of it's in nascent uh, phases. We don't have that many, um, you know, startups um, compared to, for example, the U.S. How how does the Arab world compare with the Europe with Europe or the U.S. in terms of competition and the opportunity that's there for companies to really be the leaders in their domain? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... And I alluded to this in the book there. I came up with a framework. Uh, it's called, I call it market attractiveness index. Um, and it basically has 10 metrics that relates to how can a, a global investor assess the sustainability and the opportunities within a given market or a given industry. So it touches on things like transferability of the product or service into a given territory, transparency of you know information and data available, smoothness in terms of setup and getting up and running operationally. But one of the things, one of the metrics is saturation, which is referred to how crowded a given market is or an industry. And that's a huge advantage for the Middle East because unlike the U.S., where there's a lot of competition in, in a given industry in, in general, the region is still open. Obviously, some sectors are more crowded, if you will, than others, whether it's e-commerce or you know, food delivery and, and so forth. But still, uh, by and large, given that there's 400 million population and a young tech-savvy consumer, there's a lot of uh, open space, if you will, uh, for either a local player or a global player to come in and dominate a certain space, much more so than other countries in, U- in you know, U.S. or Western Europe or China. I would say it's uh, the region is in a very ripe and very open kind of space in general uh, for, for those companies to, to develop and grow easily, as we've seen with Kareem, for example, just given how much success they had in such a short amount of time. Yeah. It's very exciting, actually, for entrepreneurs and for investors, uh, knowing that that there's so much opportunity uh, in so many ways, uh, including that the region has the highest per capita income levels in the world, some of the highest, um, especially in the oil-rich uh, GCC. We also know that the lifestyle and transportation industries have attracted the biggest share of investments until now, and perhaps those numbers might be a little skewed by some of those um unicorns like Karim. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest opportunities right now in the startup world, in the region? And what would you say to budding entrepreneurs? Yeah, so I think um, some of the biggest opportunities are in fintech and telemedicine and online education, open banking, real estate. I mean, there's so many areas that are ripe for uh, disruption and innovative companies to come in and, and kind of shift to a more uh, innovative, more cost-effective, more consumer-friendly models. So there's still there's still quite a bit of opportunities on the copy and localized model, which is you know taking something that has been working very well in the U.S., in Europe, in China, and adapting it to the region, as well as uh, addressing something that's very locally grown. One business that comes to mind is Swivel out of Egypt that took essentially took Kareem model of or, or Uber of uh, ride sharing, but then made it, tweaked it to the region needs, which is kind of like the microbus group transportation uh, for long distance. It's a lot more affordable. 
and 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 became you know is scaling quite nicely not just in Asia but now is expanding to Africa and doing very well uh, as a startup so I mean I think there's a lot of lot of opportunities for tweaking something that's been done outside for the region and then also to uh, hit something that is very local uh, problem sometimes it's even a problem that existed you know where government has not been able to solve completely and then a startup can come in and and kind of fill in that gap uh, these are the two biggest opportunities i see uh, and as i mentioned different sectors are are ripe for that from online education and and open banking and real estate and telemedicine and fintech i mean all these fintech is huge opportunity in so many ways so i think those are we're going to see those uh, industries and the great thing the about that technology hopefully is that it will allow for more transparency and more uh, checks and balances you know when when systems use uh you know the old fashioned way it's kind of much easier for things to get swept under the rug but i noticed that you decided to sporadically e-publish both your books startup arabia for free and now your new book ecosystem arabia i saw it on linkedin i think uh, recently and you've offered them for free so and i think on your website as well how does that help you sell the book because i know it's also available on other platforms for sale yeah i mean i think um, at this point uh, my focus is more on impact i mean when i do these projects i uh, first and foremost it's about you know making an impact it's about contributing to the ecosystem it's about supporting and Uh, the, the stakeholders and, and giving back, if you will. Uh, so sales is secondary. Having said that, in the beginning, when the book was launched, it was the third highest sales of international business books. Uh, but granted your point, when you make it free, it doesn't lend itself to uh, to sales, uh, although people can still buy it on Amazon if they want uh, the print version, uh, the paperback or the hardcover. Uh, but it's really now about, as I mentioned, it's about distribution, getting it in as many people's hands as possible. People can hopefully learn from it, get inspired by it, share it. You know, it provides insights or it confirms what they already know or it makes them, it provides food for thought. Uh, so I'm offering it on ecosystemarabia.com and uh, on LinkedIn and so forth. Or someone can just reach out to me and I'll send them a copy, a PDF copy. Or uh, I use a really nice format called Flipping Book, which is... It's. I think it's better than Kindle. It's. It's real nice. It's a good reading experience. Yeah, that's how I read it, and it actually can hear the pages turning. But it's funny because we're talking about technology and how quickly it's changing. Everything is adapting, but oddly enough, almost everyone I speak to still prefers to read a paper book uh, than a digital book. So I would highly encourage uh, people to order a solid copy of your book, not only to read it themselves in a more comfortable manner, but to share it, you know, with people who might benefit from it. Thank you so much for uh, writing it, putting it together. And thank you so much for being our guest today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. You can rent Ecosystem Arabia, the book, obviously, not the actual ecosystem, on Patreon. And who knew you could do that? It's kind of like going to the library, I guess, in the digital world. Or you can buy the paperback, hardcover or digital version on Amazon. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you gathered some valuable information and enjoyed yourself while doing that. If you like this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so we can let you know who's on the show. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. On Instagram, follow hakawadi.fm and me, Nadia Michelle underscore. Have a good one, my friends.